Hi, ABC family. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, first of all, I just want to wish you mothers a happy Mother's Day. Um, I want to be the, one of the first to, to welcome you and wish you that. And I pray that today would be a day where you are appreciated, loved, and spoiled a little bit. So just know that we are grateful for you and the fact we just recognize you're the glue that holds our families together. So well done, moms. Uh, we love you. We appreciate you. And maybe you're feeling a little bit disconnected, and we have another round of our connections coming up this month. Uh, starting next Sunday, the 21st of May, we'll be meeting on campus here at 9 a.m. in the Connections Room. And Connections really is a group that meets for five consecutive Sundays for about an hour each Sunday. And it's an opportunity for you to get to connect with the pastoral staff, with our ministry staff, to get to understand a little bit more about who we are as a church and why we do our ministries the way that we do. You'll get to understand our core values a little bit, and you'll get to connect with other men and women who are part of the ABC family. So whether you've been around ABC for three days or three decades, this is an opportunity for you to connect with us and with one another, and we trust that that'll be a blessing to you. So I hope to see you later this, this month. Again, we're going to start at 9 a.m. on the 21st of May. Now, you've probably heard of that phrase that a picture is worth a thousand words. But I'm wondering if you've also heard of the phrase that perspective is everything. See, perspective helps us understand what we're seeing with our eyes. Let me tell you what I mean. Take a look at this photo. What do you see? Describe what you see. When I look at this at first glance, it looks like there's a man hanging precariously off of a wall, holding onto his bike, not sure how he got there, but it looks like he's about to drop into what looks like an, a bottomless pit. <laughs> See, that's how we perceive it. But if we do a little bit of a shift of perspective, we get to see something very different, don't we? Now we see that he's actually lying on his stomach in a tunnel, very much like the one that goes under the one-on-one -on -one freeway here from our church campus toward the sunken gardens. And instead of hanging precariously about to fall into a bottomless pit, he's being held securely there by gravity. <laughs> Perspective matters. Perspective is everything. That statement is true of this picture, and it's also true of us as we walk through our lives. And today we're going to continue to preach our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 14. And in today's uh, passage, we're going to find three different perspectives that are presented through there. We're going to see a perspective of Jesus as he sees the crowds. We're going to see a perspective of the disciples as they perceive Jesus. And we're going to see the perspective of the men of a town called Gennesaret. And we'll see what they do uh, from their perspective as well. So please turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. We'll begin reading at verse 13. And before we read, let's pray. Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name, thanking you for your word and thanking you that um, you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And it's our earnest desire that you would fix our eyes on you and you would tune our ears so that we might see you correctly and have the proper perspective to understand who you are and how you are coming alongside of us as we walk our way through life. So have your way today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to begin reading at Matthew 14, verse 13. 
Now, when Jesus heard this, and this, for context, he's talking about being told about the beheading of his cousin John the Baptist in prison. When Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Here we have three perspectives. And the first perspective that we want to draw our attention to this morning is that of Jesus as he saw the crowd and he had compassion for them. Now remember, he's retreating on the heels of getting news that his cousin John has been beheaded in prison. So in his grief, he wants to withdraw from that area alone and find a desolate place. And as he does, the crowds follow him. And verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. See, Jesus sees the crowds and he perceives their needs. And the word translated that he had compassion on them literally means entrails, the, the, the guts, the viscera. He felt their needs deeply in the deepest parts of his own person. 
See, Jesus is one who sees people and he sees our deepest needs. And he feels those needs in the deepest part of his own person. One scholar says that his heart goes out to them. And he's, he's motivated to move toward them with caring and effective action. And what does he do for this caring and effective action? The text says he healed their sick. This is who Jesus is. Remember, he's been withdrawing, and yet in his grief, he has compassion. His heart goes out for the crowd. Jesus did not allow his grief to narrow his perspective and to dictate his timeline. When he looks at us, he looks at us with compassion too. See, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just like he looked on that crowd and had compassion for them, he looks at us and he feels our needs, our pains, our sorrows, and our affirmities. And as a result, his heart goes out to us. And he offers caring and effective work on our behalf. This is this perspective that Jesus has as he sees the crowd. And it's his perspective as he sees us as he sees you and as he sees me today as well. The second perspective we see is that of the d disciples. We find that in verse 26. Now this is after a long day of ministry. Jesus sends the disciples away in the boat, right? And he perceives their need and he comes walking to them uh, on the water. And verse 26 says, When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. Now, understandably, these disciples were in some pretty grave and serious um, circumstances. And in some way, their circumstances had clouded their vision. Uh, they had caused them to see Jesus as a ghost, not for the truth of who he is, but for someone or something other than who he was. You see, they saw Jesus, but they failed to recognize him. We could say that they lacked perspective. Their circumstances had clouded their vision and prevented them from truly seeing Jesus as he is. And the result? The text says they were terrified. They were gripped with fear. And I wonder how much of the fear that we encounter today is of the same nature. We just simply fail to recognize who Jesus is and to see him as he truly is. Do we allow our circumstances to alter our perspective and to prevent us from perceiving reality correctly? That's a question for us to wrestle with. You see, Jesus sees us, and he sees our need, and he has compassion for us. His heart goes out to us. But like the disciples in this storm-tossed boat, we can be prone to see him incorrectly too. We can get Jesus wrong, and when we do that, it leads to fear. We can tend to project on him that he doesn't care for us. He doesn't care about the details of our life or that he's not good. We can tend to see him as something other than that which he truly is. But when we see Jesus correctly, we become gripped by our circumstances. We need to see him correctly so that we can, in the midst of our circumstances, perceive the truth of who Jesus is. And contrary to this, so the disciples see him not as he is. Contrary to that perspective, we have the men of Gennesaret, uh, 
who actually do see Jesus for who he is. They recognize him. Look with me at verse 35. After calming the storm, the boat lands in a town called Gennesaret. And verse 35 says, When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. So, see, contrary to the disciples who failed to recognize Jesus, they thought he was a ghost, the men of Gennesaret actually do recognize Jesus. And if you look at that word recognize, it means to to draw a link or make a connection between two things. Uh, What is presently known, Jesus is in town. There's a man named Jesus in our town. And they connect that with what was previously known. We have heard that there's a man named Jesus who is healing sick people. So he is in our town. He can heal sick people. That means we make this connection. We recognize that Jesus can heal our sick people too. Do you see that link between recognizing what is presently there and recognizing what was previously known? Did you see how that produced hope that these people in Gennesaret feel? They were able to perceive actually who Jesus truly was, at least in part. And they see him correctly. They perceived reality, and that gave them hope. And their hope fueled their actions. Did you notice what they did? They sent to the whole surrounding region and called for the sick to come to Jesus. They were bringing other people to Jesus. And they asked Jesus to do great things. They just said, just let us touch the cloak of your garment. And as many as reached out to him in faith were made well. Do you see the benefits that come when we see Jesus correctly? Let's take a deeper look into this passage so that we can see some more pictures of who Jesus really is. So that as we walk through life, we have the ability then to recognize Jesus when he shows up. How do we need to recognize Jesus today? I want that mind echoing in your or that, that question echoing in your mind as we look at the rest of this text. Who do you need to see Jesus is today? And the first picture that we see is of Jesus as the bereaved. He's the, the man of sorrows who identifies with us in our grief. Look again at verse 13. When Jesus heard this, that his cousin had been beheaded in prison, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Now remember, Jesus is John's cousin, and he needs some solitude in his time of grief. So Jesus withdraws to a desolate place. He's seeking to get alone, right? And to have some time away from others in order to process. Uh, You and I know what it feels like to need to process through some difficult news and to want some alone time in order to do that. That's what Jesus is doing here as he he withdraws. Now, Mark's account also shows that, that the disciples were going with Jesus and that the disciples had just been returning from mission. They had been so busy ministering and that they hadn't even had any leisure time, not even any time to eat. So this is a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. In the midst of activity of ministry, in the midst of processing through grief, he wants to find some alone time, so he and his disciples withdraw. And what is the reality? But they are followed there by the crowds. We need to recognize that this 
this God-man Jesus, yes, he's fully God, but he's also fully man, and that comes with all the limitations of humanity. Jesus got tired, and he slept every day, just like you and me. Jesus needed some alone time when he needed time to grieve, just like we do. And Jesus felt the crippling and the depressing impact of grief, just like us. We need to recognize that Jesus is the grieving cousin of John and that he believe that he is able to meet us in our season of grief as well and to show us compassion as we grieve because he has truly felt all that we are feeling as we grieve. Jesus is the man of sorrows who can have compassion on us as we grieve because he has grieved. Secondly, we see Jesus in this passage as the healer. He's the great physician who can heal our bodies and our broken hearts. The text says in verse 14 that he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. Notice that it is while Jesus is feeling the full weight of his grief that he sees the crowd and he has compassion on them. He did not tell them to buzz off. He did not tell them to go away until he had processed his grief. He didn't say, go away, I'm working on self-care, right? How easy would it have been for him to do that? Now, for me, grief and anger are very closely linked, and I probably would have gone off. I probably would have vented verbally at this crowd and told them to just get away from me. I need some alone time, but not Jesus. Jesus sees them, has compassion on them, leans in, and heals their sick. He's able to see the needs of the people, and he chooses to defer his own needs in order to meet their needs. He puts his needs on hold, and he moves toward the crowd to heal them. Because he saw them, and he saw that they needed shepherding. He saw that they needed some teaching, and he saw that they needed to be healed. And he doesn't just give them a quick word to satisfy them either. He taught and he healed them all day long until evening, pouring himself out, his exhausted, grief-stricken self. And he eventually will get some solitude, alone time to pray. We'll see that in verse 23. But not until after he pours himself out all day long. This is a picture of Jesus for all of us to imitate. And moms, we see you doing this so well, so beautifully, day in and day out. You get up and you meet the needs of your family. You pour yourself out. You're exhausted, overworked, underappreciated, and sometimes grief-stricken self. Whether it's that middle of the night feeding, that diaper change, changing the sheets, driving to sports practice, making dinner, handling the finances, many of you doing all of this while working a day job in order to keep a roof over our heads and food on our tables. Moms, well done. We see you imitating Jesus as we see you serving us. And we should all aspire to be like this. But more importantly than that, this is who we need to recognize that Jesus is for us. He's our compassionate healer who has done and will continue to do whatever it takes to bring us the ultimate healing that we really need. And perhaps this is who you need to recognize that Jesus is today. He's your healer. 
who cares about you and will do whatever it takes to meet you at that need. Thirdly, we see Jesus as the sovereign, the one who can overrule the laws of physics in order to meet our needs. Look at verses 19 and 20. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. See, for reasons that Matthew doesn't disclose to us, there was a massive crowd of people there, but only one person had thought forward enough and packed a lunch. We're not sure why. And at the end of the day, with no hoping of finding enough groceries for so many people, even if they were to travel to multiple towns, the disciples feel the weight of the desperate situation that they're in. And they command Jesus to send them away. We could even say that it was Jesus' fault that they had been there all day long. He just kept on teaching and preaching. And some of you are thinking, okay, Gerald, that sounds a little bit like you. I've seen your outline. You've got six more points to do. You better pick up the pace. Typical preacher stuff, right? All day long. So the disciples approach Jesus and they say, Jesus, send the crowd away that they can go get food for themselves. But Jesus looks at them and he says, you give them something to eat. What a shocking reply. And all that the disciples can see here in this moment is their lack of provision. They say, what are five loaves and two fish going to accomplish for so many? But it turns out that when they bring what they do have to Jesus, he multiplies it and he feeds everybody. Then the disciples actually do have something to give to the crowd. And Jesus doesn't just barely meet the need. He doesn't just give everybody a taste because he is the provider whose daily rations sometimes include leftovers. Look at the second half of verse 20. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Jesus meets this crazy huge need and he does so with leftovers. Remember, it's Jesus' heart that goes out to the crowd, right? And he had compassion on them. He heals their sick. And his compassion for them also recognizes their physical needs. They need sustenance. These people are hungry. And he met that need in a very supernatural way. And as he does that, he teaches his disciples a very important lesson along the way. Each one of his 12 disciples ends up carrying a basket full of pieces left over. Each one of them was carrying a basket of leftovers. I wonder what it weighed. The word used here can, can mean a basket of any size, but I bet the baskets were fairly large. And what was undoubtedly the case is that every one of those disciples was carrying a basket with more food in it after everybody had eaten and been satisfied that was more in volume than what they had to start with. Jesus is the provider whose daily rations sometimes includes leftovers. Do you know Jesus that way? Have you seen Jesus in this way? My family and I transitioned out of farming and ranching in North Dakota back in 2003, and we moved down to Southern California to go to seminary. 
And when we did, the business plan looked like we could, you know, liquidate some assets, sell the business, retain other assets and rent them out, pay the taxes and have something to live on for the duration of the degree, kind of crossing the finish line with like $4 in our checking account, uh, trusting that God was going to provide a ministry opportunity that would take up our family needs along the way at that point. But in reality, six months in, we ran out of money. And Lisa and I prayed together saying, okay, Lord, what are you going to do? You know, our family needs a roof over our head. We like to eat and we need tuition waiver to, to cover our needs for these educational degrees that we're pursuing. And a, a few days later, a guy sat next to me at my church and he says, Gerald, I see you can work with your hands. We have an opening at the Biola power plant. Would you happen to be looking for work? And so I took that job, full-time job, complete with benefits, including a tuition waiver. So God not only provided for my tuition, but he provided tuition for our kids' undergrad degrees and for my wife's master's degree. Jesus is the provider whose daily rations sometimes includes leftovers. And we need to see him from that perspective. Next, we see that Jesus is the servant. He's the one who's always working through our circumstances for our good. We see that in verse 22. So after feeding the crowd, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus sent the disciples off in a boat while he dismissed the crowd. See, he wasn't rushing away. It's as if he was saying, you guys go ahead. I know you're tired. Go get some rest. I'll handle this. I've got this. You know someone like that? Someone who's always the last one in the kitchen doing the dishes. Someone who's always the last one out the door because they're serving everybody else. Again, moms, you come to mind. You do this so well. You are always telling us, you know, you go ahead. I've got these dishes. I want you to enjoy the conversation. You love us and you serve us in so many ways. And as you do, you're giving us a picture of who Jesus is. Yeah, Jesus is the person leading this trip, right? He is the rabbi leading his disciples. He's the one who normally would be served here in this set of circumstances. But what we find is he's the one serving. He's the one who is working diligently for the good of those who are around him. And remember, he still has not gotten his alone time to process his grief with his heavenly father in prayer. That's his next move, but he's not rushing off to it. He doesn't leave his disciples to clean up after the mess or to dismiss the crowds. He does that. He dismisses the crowds, and then he makes his way up the mountain to pray. And those of us who are in some sort of leadership, whether it be in our homes or our businesses or our ministries, would do well to see Jesus as the servant leader and to imitate him as a servant leader. We need to recognize that this is who Jesus is, and we need to receive that from him and seek to imitate him in that way as a servant leader. Sixth, we see that Jesus is the Lord who won't be stopped by anything as he comes to our aid. So Jesus sends the disciples off. He goes up the mountain and praying, and after he prays, he recognizes that his disciples are in a tough spot out on the water, struggling against the waves. 
Those are difficult circumstances. Circumstances, by the way, that he sent them into. Remember verse 22? He made them get into the boat and he sent them off across the lake. Likely knowing that a storm was coming. So the disciples are in terrible circumstances, circumstances that Jesus sent them into. They left in the evening, and now the text says that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus comes walking to them on the water. He perceives their need on the mountain, and he gets up and he begins to move directly toward them, walking down the mountain and walking right toward that boat, and the, the water the wind and the waves will not stop him. He just keeps walking toward his disciples in order to give them help, supernaturally moving toward them to bring them the help that they need. Do you see how Jesus' heart of compassion is still motivating him to provide caring and effective action? He's moving toward them, not even being stopped by waves and water. Not even the laws of nature can stand against Jesus as he sets out to bring aid to his people. Do you see Jesus in this way? He's both willing and able to overcome anything as he moves toward you, to provide you with the help that you need in the midst of your scary circumstances. And of course, we can pick the the story up here in verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. We see here that Jesus is the comforter, the one who commands fear away and comforts us with his presence. He says, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. In other words, be of good cheer, guys. Be firm in the face of danger. It is I. I'm here. Do not be afraid. These two commands, the one at the beginning, take heart, and the one at the end, do not be afraid, they sandwich the truth in the middle that makes obeying these commands possible. He says, it is I. He's the same God that revealed himself in Moses. The Greek words here are ego eimi, that means I am. And if you remember way back in Exodus 3, when Moses said, who do I tell the people of Israel has sent me? God says, tell them I am has sent me to you. This is the name of God. And Jesus says, you can take heart, you do not have to fear because I am here with you. Jesus is here with me. The underlying reality that makes it possible for people in terrifying circumstances to be of good cheer, it's not denial, but it's actually acknowledging that my circumstances are as bad as they look, but that Jesus is here with me in the midst of those circumstances. And some of us are in desperate circumstances. Some of us are in difficult spot. And for some of us, we're there because we followed God into those things. Maybe it's our marriage or or our family dynamics, or maybe it's our vocational trials or our financial situation. Maybe for some, it's our ministry. Yeah, our circumstances are difficult. They are scary. 
but Jesus sees you and he is with you. And he's calling you to walk by faith in the midst of these circumstances. And because he is with you, we do not need to be afraid. Jesus is the comforter who speaks courage into our fearful hearts. So, what does Peter say? Of course, Peter has something to say in light of this. He says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And here we see a picture of Jesus as the Savior who rescues us from the storm when we call out to him in faith. Peter cries out, Lord, save me. Three little words, but these three little words change everything for Peter. Is this who you need to recognize that Jesus is today? He's your Savior. Are you stinking, sinking into the stormy waves of your life? Just cry out, Lord, save me. Jesus will move in and he will do just that. He will meet you in the scary desperate, terrifying circumstances in which you find yourself, and he will take you by the hand, just like he did for Peter, and he will cause you to rise up above your circumstances. He will save you. This is where the Christian life starts. It starts when you and I are overwhelmed by our circumstances, and we recognize that I can't do this, and we recognize that Jesus can and so we call out to him and we invite him into our circumstances. We say, Lord, save me. And maybe that is where you're at today. Maybe today is the day that you turn the reins of your life over to Jesus by using those three little words, Lord, save me. Recognizing that when he reaches out his hand, he is reaching out a hand of forgiveness. He's reaching out a hand of compassion. And he is reaching out a hand that can cause you to rise up out of your desperate and scary circumstances. After crying out to him, Peter and Jesus step into the boat. And that's where the disciples get a picture of Jesus as the Son, whose command over his creation incites worship and praise. Look at verses 32 and 33. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You see, they saw a picture of Jesus that they had needed to see. They saw a picture of one who is sovereign over his creation. He is sovereign over the wind and the waves. And just getting into the boat with them, the wind and the waves stop. And these disciples were exhausted from a, a whole day of ministry. They were exhilarated from seeing Jesus turn a small lunch into an all-you-can-eat feast. They were frustrated from rowing against the wind and the waves all night long. They were terrified from seeing what they thought was a ghost. And they were bewildered by seeing Peter join Jesus in walking on the water and then when he got distracted and his eyes went off of Jesus and onto the circumstances, he sunk down into them. And then they saw Jesus grab him by the hand and lift him back out. 
And now Jesus steps into the boat and the winds and the waves cease. Those physically and emotionally exhausted disciples finally recognize that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. And that nature still knows the voice that commanded them into existence with a word. Jesus is the Son of God. And this is the perspective that we all need. Jesus is the Son of God and is worthy of our worship and our praise. You see, once we have this perspective, that's when we're able to recognize that Jesus is all these other identities as well. We begin to be able to recognize him as the bereaved. He's the man of sorrows who identifies with our grief. We can see Jesus as the healer. He's the great physician who can heal our bodies and our broken hearts. He's the sovereign who can overrule the laws of physics to meet our needs. He's the provider whose daily rations sometimes include leftovers. He's the servant who's always working through our circumstances for our good. He's the Lord who won't be stopped by anything as he comes to bring us aid. He's the comforter who commands fear away and he comforts us with his presence. He's the savior who rescues us from the storm when we call out to him in faith. And he's the son whose command over his creation incites worship and praise. So I'll ask it again, who do you need to recognize that Jesus is today? We'll likely need to see him as all of these at some point in our lives. But who do you need to recognize Jesus is for you today? Let's pause and let's pray and let's allow him to be who he is for us. Father, we look to you now and we pray that by the ministry of your spirit and the, and the means of your word, you would reveal to us who it is that you want Jesus to be for us today. And I pray that you would meet each one right where they are in whatever circumstances they are and you would be for them who they need you to be. Convince us that you have a heart of compassion that goes out to us and motivates you to help meet our needs. And would you please show up even in supernatural ways in our life? And as you do, would you bring comfort and would you increase faith? We pledge ahead of time to give you the praise and the worship and the honor and the glory for it is yours and yours alone. I pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So there we have it, church. And I want you to realize that Paul actually prayed for perspective for his people too. As he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he wrote this. He said, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, having your eyes opened so that you might have the proper perspective so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Indeed, church, may our eyes be opened that we might see Jesus for who he truly is and recognize him 
as we walk through the circumstances of our life. That's who he is for you. That's who he is for me. Have a great week. We love you.